How is artificial intelligence impacting healthcare? What is decentralized science? If you're Gen Z, should you be afraid of artificial intelligence or see it as a benefit? All of these questions and more will be discussed in this 62nd edition of the Gen Z Diplomat podcast with Denny O'Brien. We are at the fourth industrial revolution. What does this mean and why is it important? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I'm super excited to be chatting with you. And uh, these are some really important topics. So the fourth industrial revolution, I think we have to take a look a little bit at the previous three to really understand what's going on right now. Um, so with the first industrial revolution that was kind of mechanized manufacturing, the invention of the steam engine, textile mills, all this stuff that made uh, kind of industry possible, right? Then we had the second industrial revolution. This was like late 19th, early 20th century. And that was kind of this rapid progress, including like adoption of electricity everywhere, uh, invention of the telephone, telegraph, expansion of railroads, etc. Um, then we have the third, which people are going to be a little bit more familiar with because it's still kind of ongoing. And that's the digital revolution. So computing, telecommunications, the internet, um, widespread use of phones and, and laptops, this sort of thing. So that's still kind of ongoing, especially in developing nations, but it's uh, well on its way right now. But what actually has happened is we've had this fourth industrial revolution kind of hit us all of a sudden. Uh, and it is a fundamental change to the way that we live, to the way that we relate and work with each other. Um, and this is the revolution of artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, big data, big data analytics, the internet of things, everything being connected all of a sudden, including your fridge and toaster and things like that. Um, but also really cool stuff like robotics and automation, 3D printing. And as it pertains a little bit more to my work, biotech and genetic engineering. Mm. And why should someone care about this fourth industrial revolution? Like, should we be worried about it? Should we be thinking of it as a positive? Like, are we moving in the right direction? Or are there other thoughts that we should also factor in to this conversation? Absolutely. So overall, uh, I will say this multiple times during our interview, uh, technologies are a tool, right? And a hammer is a hammer to bang in nails, except when someone's running at you trying to hit you with it, right? Then it becomes a weapon. So we have to keep in mind that all technolo technological developments are tools that can be used either for good, for bad, um, why people should care is because this will foundationally and is foundationally changing human society on a global level and it will touch everything um, in the same way like I kind of remember the time pre internet or when it wasn't common to have internet in your house so I remember our first modem getting installed and the little uh, beepy noises that it would make. Um, and this found fundamentally changed my life. Um, you know, I still remember in schools, laptops were banned, internet research was frowned upon, and we had to queue up at the library with cards to get books out. Um, so the internet has completely revolutionized, but when we're talking about artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, automation, these are going to affect and already are affecting every single day. So we're exposed as of right now today to so many algorithms on a daily basis through all of our digital interactions, our internet use, our social media use, especially what uh, media we're watching, but also when it comes to our employment and our work and the way that we interact with one another, this is all kind of being guided in the background by algorithms and let's say very advanced scripts. Um, and these are having an impact on our lives now. So why we should care is because this is defining not just in the future, but also right now, the way that our lives are, are being uh, done in, in the digital realm. For sure. And speaking of the, the past uh, three revolutions, it, it was like 
every single revolution, people were displaced in terms of jobs, but they also were able to re remake themselves when that revolution occurred. Um, so I think one example was, you know, in the uh, industrial revolution of the past, you know, people stopped using their hands and started use learned how to use machines. You know, that was just an example. But now we're we're in the midst of a kind of automation crisis. And whenever you talk about AI, people are just, oh, it's going to take my job. You see all these articles about generative AI replacing uh, graphics designers and all of this. So just as the next question, is AI going to take all of our jobs? And is this an overblown fear or is this kind of like a prescient analysis? What are your thoughts? For sure. It's it's a super important topic to talk about, especially right now. Uh, one thing that I want to set as a premise for anyone who's maybe an expert even listening on this or who knows a lot about it, we don't actually have artificial intelligence yet. Um, we have very, very clever, complex algorithms, basically super advanced scripts, uh, but this kind of... Um, you know, Skynet type Terminator thinking for itself, setting its own goals. This this hasn't hit us yet. So when we have this conversation, maybe in five, 10 years time, it will look very different. Um, but that said, when we look at our current generation of AI um, or algorithms, it's it's silly to believe that something like this, such an important change is not going to affect jobs. Um, and even, you know, when we're not even talking about replacing jobs, it's going to change them and, and the way that they're done. Um, so, for example, in my work, I do a lot of public relations, press relations, etc. Um, and something that's very formulaic and a very, let's say, uh, easy part of my job is writing press releases. They, they follow a certain structure. Uh, and this, for me, with, with uh, generative AI, I can do it you know, maybe 30 to 40% already of, of that job can be done by AI. Obviously I have to give my input, improve it, uh, give it details, et cetera, but it's already automating a lot of that stuff for me in my current day-to-day -day job. Um, and there's this uh, concept in programming uh, and there's even a book on Python called Automate the Boring Stuff. And this is kind mm. of the, the mantra that I have when it comes to current generations of AI. Um, I see a lot of potential to automate the things that we don't like doing or are very formulaic and can be easily accomplished by machines. Um, and I think even looking in manufacturing or other industries as well, you know, these these menial repetitive tasks that in the same way the, the previous industrial revolution with textile mills all was done by hand and woven on, on looms and then it turned into mechanized and automated processes, we will see the same shift and we are seeing the same shift. Uh, especially if you look at car manufacturers are using a lot of robotics for some of the higher end cars um, because it's better quality control and it's automating the boring stuff. So when it comes to the, the creative, obviously it's going to have an impact, but I think until we have that next generation of AI that can really think for itself and generate out of nothing rather than based on all of these inputs. Um, you know, you talked about graphic designers, for example, what the generative visual AIs are doing right now are just taking in mass amounts of previous designs and, you know, and some people would say stealing from, from artists and creating something based on that, but they're trained on existing artwork. They're not really, I mean, they're starting to be, but they're not at the point where they're creating spontaneously and of themselves. Yeah. So that's for sure going to affect the, the, the discussion going into the future. Um, but is it an overblown fear? I mean, we could maybe talk about some of the broader implications of AI. I think sure. it's, it's very important to talk about these things. I think we need strong um, regulations and labor protections in place to stop um, too many people being displaced. 
Um, but there's a there's a great story about when cars were first invented and the cabbies of, of London who were going around on horses. And, you know, there are even articles in the 1800s in the newspapers of the early 1900s saying, oh, they'll never replace us. People will never trust these machines over a person with a horse. And, you know, look where we are now. Um, so I think when it comes to technology, you can never really predict um, what's actually going to be affected. But when we're talking about these important tools uh, and, and these revolutions really in, in, in our technology, we have to assume that they're going to have a major impact. Yeah, no, 100%. I think in um, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, he wrote something along, along the lines of, you know, in the 1900s, we were so obsessed with horses and thought we would never be replacing horses. And then after 1913, you know, horses became like dog food after that. And so that's kind of like how immediate the transition is or how, um, how immediate that kind of revolution can be. So let's say I'm a Gen Z in a high school. Maybe I've just been enrolled in a college or university. How should I be thinking about artificial intelligence? Should I be particularly afraid of it? Like, do I have to rethink my entire career path? Or am I a Gen Z or am I as a Gen Z best place to make the most of it? As a digital native, I've grown up with social media. I've grown up with an iPad or an Alexa within, you know, an arm's reach. How should I be thinking of it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. To be to be honest, I think Gen Z is best placed um, to benefit from AI and to integrate it. So there's a fundamental human characteristic that all of us have to a certain extent, uh, and that's resistance to change, right? And uh, those growing up with certain technologies, so for me, example, it was, it was getting into the internet age and the first home computers that were becoming more and more common. Um, I definitely struggle less with technology than my parents, for example. Um, but I didn't grow up with cell phones in my pocket or social media. Um, and for me, screen burnout when it comes to my phone specifically is a significant problem. I'm so tired of notifications and scrolling. You know, I don't have this issue with computers because I grew up with that. But when it comes to phones, I, I feel it a little bit. Uh, and I'm only in my mid-30s, right? So, um, but I think the, the people who grew up with this tool uh, really have the, the best ability to kind of... Um, incorporated in their lives with with the least amount of of, of struggle or, or you know or difficulty um and i think uh you know when we think about ai and its current iteration i, I really would recommend people view them as potential tools to help them right mm -hmm. um because it's definitely going to impact some jobs i think it's definitely going to impact some careers you know there's a lot of discussion in hollywood right now screenwriters guild is uh uh, protesting and on strike because of uh, companies talking about maybe using AI to generate scripts or movie ideas. And, you know, these are people's livelihoods and their jobs. So it's definitely going to have an impact. Um, but I think when you're like, if you're in high school right now or in college, think about how this tool can help you. Uh, it could be in very small ways, for example, writing uh, your resume, your CV, right? When you're applying for a job, you could say, hey, take this job listing, take my resume or a CV and create a application letter that uses all the right keywords and brings out my best experience and, and chat GPT is currently able to do this. Um, but I think, as I said, when you are thinking about this as a potential tool to help you, um, it's going to open up some some huge potential career uh, possibilities in the future. Uh, so I know there are some hospitals already hiring for AI prompt engineers because they're looking mm -hmm. to incorporate AI potentially in that first touch care um, intake of patients, et cetera. And they're looking for engineers who understand AI and can give it the right prompts. So that's already a field of jobs that is opening up, especially in the, in the tech industry. 
Um, and so I think when you view it like a tool, just like the internet or just like email or anything like that, you can start to see that there are many job opportunities that are going to come up based on, on AI. So I wouldn't be scared of it per se, uh, especially when you think of it as that potential helper uh, to help sure. you achieve those goals. For sure. Yeah, I think, you know, just as a TLDR, it, it would be you don't be scared of it, but also don't ignore it. Um, so two follow-up questions, honestly, just before we get into, you know, the bulk, which is AI healthcare. Um, you said we don't have artificial intelligence. We have just really advanced algorithms and really advanced scripts. So that's a, a kind of like a possibly a moot question, but do you think we'll ever achieve artificial intelligence putting consciousness? Well, maybe artificial consciousness, but do you think we'll ever achieve AGI? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I've thought about this for a very, very long time. And to be yeah. honest, my, my opinion has changed over the years as I've seen ChatGPT come out, you know, and, and some of these other AI models. Um, so, for example, there's another company working on analyzing brainwaves to recreate video of thoughts, which is absolutely mm -hmm. insane, um, which like is the realm of science fiction up until the last couple of years. And, and yeah. it's actually like 90 to 95 percent frame by frame accurate to an actual video. Um, so these are like the crazy things that are just happening month after month right now. Um, in terms of the complexity of creating a truly artificial consciousness is very difficult. But if you really look at the human brain, it is just this huge neural network of connectivity and data being sent around. Whether there's this magic element that makes us conscious and human, I don't know. Uh, I think that's more of a chat for the, the big philosophers out there. Um, but if you just look at our, our progress within the last few years in neural networks and machine learning and vision learning and artificial intelligence is kind of the broad category for all this, you know, I really, I would, I think I would be wrong to say we're not going to achieve it. It's, it's more a matter of when. Uh, and it could be decades in the future. Uh, there could be, you know, breakthroughs such as quantum computing that make it this a whole lot easier just with the pure processing power and then opening that up. Um, and I think also you have to remember that, you know, these models and these AI algorithms are being built and built on top of the other and top of the other. Um, and so maybe for one person to just create a, an artificial consciousness is not possible when you put all of these AIs together, add in the fact that they can learn from, from their own programming, um, I could see it happening. Uh, sure. So. sure. So, so maybe in the next 20 to 100 years, we'll give a broad uh, time horizon. Safe. It's possible. Safe, safe timeline. <laughs> um, you, you also touched on the broader detriments of artificial intelligence. So just before we, again, we get into the AI healthcare, would you be able to speak to the broader detriments? How should people be thinking about the downsides of AI as it currently exists? Yeah, so it's it's another really important topic, um, and I think you know, particularly when we when we talk about the militarization of of AI and hooking it up to a system that has access to nuclear launch codes, you know, mm -hmm. these are things that people are actually legitimately talking about. But also the impersonation of of global leaders, uh, since you have voice replication and even digital avatar software now, deep fakes, as most people will know them, um, you can create some really scary stuff right now with the technology we have, uh, and this really needs to be talked about and, and figured out because we already have world leaders that are susceptible to phishing attacks and just like email, you know, um, uh, spear phishing and stuff like that, which is just, you know, some hackers putting in words into an email. So when you add voice uh, emulation, voice modulation and, and uh, digital avatars on top of that, you know, it's a really potentially scary uh, situation to be in. And I think the other thing, you know, look at China, for example, where they have um, behavioral recognition through their extensive uh, surveillance technology. 
um, credit, digital and social credit scores based on your behaviors online, your interactions, uh, all being kind of governed and analyzed by AI simply because you can't, you know, keep tabs on a billion plus people uh, with with other people. You have to use algorithms and machines. Uh, these are all implications and applications of AI that for me are quite concerning. Um, and why, for me personally, my, my role in AI has been very much on the ethical side and ensuring that the data that's going in and the processing that's happening on the inside um, is pro-public and, and for the public good and not just for either private enterprise, but also, you know, uh, government applications that perhaps are, are less than uh, wholesome. Yeah, no, I, I don't think people fully understand how worrisome and scary deep fakes are you know if, if we see how fast um controversial news about any particular politician or any particular let's say person um celebrity or influencer or whoever if you are able to you know replicate their voice replicate their movements their gestures and then send that out and then at light speed that thing just um, spreads and, and no one really is fact-checking this. I mean, I think one fact I wrote in my book was not even, not even like Gen Z don't even want to spend 15 minutes to fact-check if, if what they have shared or what they have read is true or not. And that's horrifying if some malicious group wants to take, you know, a, a video of, you know, a president or another world leader or the CEO of a company and then broadcast that out. You know, how many people are going to, you know, pump the brakes on spreading that kind of gossip or, or content or anything. It's very, very scary. And we, unfortunately, we could be seeing wars being started over it, you know, other cyber attacks, threats, all of this. And, and I don't think people are aware of how disastrous this first deep fake fiasco could be. Um, so I just wanted to, to say that just because we, we brought it up. But let's stop talking about the, the dangers of AI because AI, honestly, and again, people don't realize how beneficial AI could be for something like healthcare, which you are very uh, involved in. So how is AI revolutionizing healthcare? What interesting developments are happening that you are aware of and maybe that you have worked on? For sure. It's it's a super exciting application of AI and one that I'm really passionate and excited about because today there are people who can say that AI or algorithms saved their lives uh, when it came to medical wow. intervention. So one of the big applications is the diagnosis and advanced diagnosis of disease. So, uh, for example, visual machine learning on cancer screenings, for example. And it's already showing that algorithms and, and AI are able to identify cancer tumors before humans are able to. So this is incredible because as with most diseases, especially potentially terminal ones, the earlier you catch it, the better uh, the chances are for the patient and, and their final outcome. So that's already going on and is super exciting. Uh, another startup here in, in Europe that's working on something really cool is uh, connecting with biometrics so like Apple Watch and other heart monitors uh, to predict heart attacks and to automatically dispatch first uh, responders and paramedics if someone is having the symptoms of a heart attack, even potentially before they know it, right? Um, this, again, with heart attacks, the faster you respond, the better the outcomes, and it's super exciting. And, and what I really particularly like uh, about this startup, for example, is that they're committed to uh, open sourcing their algorithm. They want other hospitals to, to benefit from it. They want to spread it as much as possible. Uh, and that's a really exciting thing to see um, in the space. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on as well, for example, in robotics. So there's going to be a, a, a large um, 
let's say explosion of, of, of robotics when it comes to healthcare. So I already know one company, I believe the DaVinci robot, which is human assisted, but they're training it with, um, with input so that their AI can in the future do automatic surgeries. Um, and then, of course, like big data analysis, when you look at, for example, pandemics, all of the information that we got uh, about COVID was big data analysis um, and using that to make good decisions for, for public health and pandemic responses and, and things like that. So these are some of the ways that it's already happening right now. Uh, but one of the really exciting ones for me is um, things like ChatGPT and other, other models like that. Um, they're already showing that their responses are better in some cases than doctors when it comes to empathetic responses, which was quite wow. surprising to me. Um, but where it could play an incredible role, um, and especially for anyone in the U.S. Lesson, listening, uh, I lived in the U.S. for uh, 13 years, and I know what the healthcare system is like. I know what my deductible was, and I know that I personally avoided uh, going to the hospital because of how much it was going to cost me. Hmm. Same with like um, uh, primary care and, you know, um, if you have the flu or things like that. And so what's really exciting about potentially using AI is having it as the first touch primary care for telemedicine. And so rather than bothering, you know, not bothering, but uh, using the resources of specialists who are already overworked and understaffed in a lot of hospitals, you could have this first touch AI doctor or, or kind of intake specialist that would based on your, your symptoms and talking with you, give you some sort of idea of what, what might be going on. And if it's just a flu, you know, maybe prescribe even medication that would then automatically arrive at your door through the mail. Um, and this could really, when you, if you think about the companies that are wanting to open source this, um, this could open up primary care for people who currently are not going to the doctor or the hospital because they can't afford it. Uh, and that to me is one of the most exciting applications of, of AI and actually reducing or removing the cost of healthcare for people. Are there, are there data on how many people would be open to chatting with, you know, chat GPT or, or a similar or an analog of it? Um, just from my perspective, I don't think, you know, if I told my dad, you know, don't go to the hospital, just talk to ChatGPT, he'd look at me like I was crazy. So, like, how do you think it would be received by people? Obviously, you did bring up price and, you know, the, the absurd cost of healthcare in places like the United States. So, how, how do you think this technology would be received by people? Or is it being yeah, received? So yeah, on the on on the one hand, you know, I think as, going back to our discussion about Gen Z, the people who grow up with these technologies are going to be way more comfortable with them, right? Sure. And so, for me personally, I'm in my mid thirties, but I'm part of that kind of tech revolution, that tech generation, and I'm I'm okay with a doctor, an AI doctor, giving me like the the simple diagnoses, right? I I don't particularly want to hear from a robot that I have terminal cancer. I, I would still prefer to hear from a human doctor on that. Uh, but if I'm just logging on to a online, you know, a telemedicine service and putting in some symptoms and having a conversation with a with a advanced uh, AI chat based, um, you know, doctor, for example, I, I'm okay with that. And, and I think if you look at the broad, I, I don't know if they've done specific studies yet on chat GPT, it's still very early. Uh, but when you look at the broad studies on uh, digital medicine, telehealth, there is a growing support for this. And people actually, especially after the pandemic, where you couldn't go outside and, you know, we're on lockdown, and maybe you had something going on, but you couldn't go to your doctor, because you've been told to, you know, stay at home. Um, the support for telemedicine has grown significantly since the pandemic. So I think um, definitely it's going to be easier for younger generations. But I, I think we'd also be surprised when you have not like the old school 
e-commerce chatbots that don't understand you and they're a pain in the ass to listen to and they don't you know give you the answers you want but if we're talking about these advanced algorithms these ai chatbots i, I think they're getting to the point of passing the turing test and that's really going to be a barrier for entry for a lot of people to to accept them yeah it's it's, it's a very exciting prospect of people being or having more access to um, healthcare and it also kind of in a way democratizes healthcare and gives others and gives people in other countries access to really high quality healthcare as well because you know if, if we're talking about a chatbot or a healthcare chatbot they're only going to be trained on the highest quality data and so it's not just people in the united states for example it'll be people in canada people in mexico possibly people in you know um you know rising countries or or, or poorer countries rather like africa or india or something and so this this really gives uh, like the, the power that ChatGPT has given people in terms of you know coding and text generation and art, it'll, it'll give them in terms of healthcare. Um, so unfortunately, we also have to talk about the detriments of AI healthcare because, you know, problems exist in artificial intelligence, like bias and, you know, opaqueness and responsibility. So what are these detriments in AI healthcare and, and how, are, how should we, we be thinking about it? For sure. Um, so this is what we're working on specifically at, at my company and foundation, the Donate Your Data Foundation and Data Lake. Um, bias in the data is a huge issue and another really, really serious issue, especially when we're talking about AI and the, the applications of technology and healthcare, is a lack of representation. So typically when it comes to medical data, the biggest represented um, uh, demographic, as might not be a surprise, is white Western males, relatively affluent middle class or, you know, from from Western countries. Uh, what this means is an AI that is built for some sort of healthcare application may not work the same for a minority or even for a woman who, you know, I, I think it depends on the country, but it's something like only 20 to 23% of, of medical data and studies are, are for women specifically when they're 50% of the world's population. Um, so this is a really big problem, bias and uh, a lack of representation in data. And that's really what we're trying to work on um, at my organizations to secure ethical access to these large data sets, which will help reduce the bias, but also help improve the representation. Um, because really, AI in healthcare has the possibility to revolutionize our care. Um, but as another old um, programming adage is garbage in, garbage out. And if your data is garbage, or if it's biased, your output, your AI algorithm, your robotics are going to be biased and potentially garbage. Um, so th this is uh, this is one of the main issues. Another one is that a lot of these algorithms are just black boxes right now. We don't know what's happening on the inside. Um, we don't know what biases it may have, not just the data being biased, but the bias actually in the programming. Uh, and another thing is that we don't know who's maybe pushed the finger on the scale of what the objectives of the AI are, right? So let's say you have talking about primary care, first touch doctor, telemedicine, it's all using algorithms, but those algorithms are skewed by a health insurance company who helped funded it to ensure that they spend the least amount of money on treatment, right? And then all of a sudden you're getting sub quality care, you're not getting the care that you need potentially because the people who made the AI are most interested in the financial outcome. Um, so these are all important questions. And I think another thing, you know, there are these paradoxes that emerge um, let's say you go to a hospital who's implemented an AI system and the AI diagnoses you with a certain disease or, or illness, and then a doctor steps in and goes, hey, based on my human experience and my 20 years of working as a practicing doctor, I don't think it's, you know, a sinus infection. I think it's nasal cancer or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, what happens? Who do you go with? Who has liability? And then, 
even to a second layer of that, what if you have a doctor and an AI on one side and a doctor and the AI on the other? Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Um, and these are not entirely new discussions when it comes to second opinions in healthcare, but they're definitely on a new level when you have this technology that people tend to innately trust um, because they think it's a neutral third party, but behind the scenes, there, there is still a lot of bias. Um, and trust in healthcare is a major factor uh, when it comes to the adoption of a technology and you know the the eventual outcomes. So these are all super important things that we're we're currently discussing. So our co-founder um, Ligia Kornowska, she's the head of the AI and Healthcare Coalition in Poland, and they released a white paper exactly on this, discussing all the intricacies of how AI should be implemented and the ethics and the uh, kind of philosophy behind it. Um, but it's going to take a, a much broader discussion. I know the EU government's talking about it right now with the AI Act and have just passed that. Um, but on a global scale, you know, as as I said, we release these kind of uh, algorithms into the wild. We need to have rules for engagement in place. Uh, and I think, as with all technological technological revolutions, you know, legislation is always behind the the technology itself. Sure, sure. Uh, it reminds me of the kind of self-driving conundrum where people don't know who to blame when a self-driving car crashes because you can't blame the, the passenger because they weren't driving. You can't blame the company because they have cars that haven't crashed. You can't blame the programmers because obviously the car wouldn't be on the street if it were prone to crashing. And you can't blame like the advertisers or the marketers. So it's kind of some, some fault has, been, has occurred, but you don't know who to blame. Um, can you speak uh, initially to these uh, conundrums like you talked about the white paper? Are, are there any intricacies that are of note to you? Um, yeah, so uh, the, the, the primary one for me is stakeholder consultancy, right? So we're talking about these algorithms that are going to affect patients. And a lot of times it's just experts or governments talking about it and not consulting with patients. Um, so for me, making people and the end end users or the end receivers of, of AI and these technological developers, uh, a big part of the discussion is super important. Uh, and we're doing a lot of this. So in, in our um, Donate Your Data campaign, where we're trying to get people to donate their data um, to, to medical researchers, what we're actually doing is going into hospitals, talking with patients, talking about their concerns, explaining the technology to them, and making them very much part of the process. And, and I don't think that you can... Uh, talk about these um, society-wide changes in technology without actually engaging society uh, and, and finding out what the consensus is, right? Because often the experts are so stuck in their, their field that they're great at what they do maybe in, in the development or the research, but the applications really take a much broader approach. Um, so that for me is really important and making sure um, from a legislative point of view that we have the guardrails in place that we have the decisions made um, and that we have strong strong laws to, to help protect consumers. And, and thankfully in Europe, we, we have a lot of those. But again, we're, we're talking about these developing technologies where politicians are five, 10 years behind still figuring out how to use social media, let alone what AI is gonna do to, to change everything about our society, so. Right, right. Um, just if we were to step away from AI, but still you know stay on healthcare, um, healthcare data is quite sensitive and blockchain is fully transparent and open. So how is blockchain being applied to the medical industry and what are people uninformed about regarding this application? For sure. So um, just for anyone who maybe is not 100% aware, blockchain is a way of um, sharing information in a way that is um, tamper-proof and verifiable 
open and transparent and basically one block of data should be equal to the same block of data on any other copy of this data. Um, that said, when you put something on the blockchain, it is permanent, it is forever, you can't remove it. Um, and potentially, especially with large blockchains, it could be copied in the tens of thousands uh, of instances at the same time, right? So putting actual personal data on the blockchain, at least in Europe, is illegal. You can't do it because we have mm. the GDPR law, which gives us the right to be forgotten, uh, which is a fantastic right that any EU citizen can say, go to a website and say, you, ha you have this post of me, you have this picture of me, or I, I contributed to your site, I want it gone. Uh, and they have to comply, which is fantastic. But blockchain kind of messes with that because you're not just giving your data to someone, you're giving it to potentially 10,000 different people at the same time and making those copies. So um, when it comes to actually putting personal data on the blockchain, it's an idea almost as old as the blockchain and it's a terrible idea. Um, how we're implementing blockchain specifically in the medical field is we're using blockchain technology to create a verifiable and transparent system of consent for people who want to contribute to medical science. So what that means is we believe, number one, that if you are going to contribute your data to someone else, it should be based on your consent. You should have the say whether it goes or it doesn't. Um, you also have the right to remove that consent, uh, and that's actually enshrined in, in a subsequent EU law called the Data Governance Act, and I believe um, will kind of provide the foundation for some of the US's upcoming uh, legislations on data. Um, so what we don't want to have happen is that the public or patients have to trust us that in our privately held database, they're marked as a donor, as a consent or non-consent. Um, these are our most important data sets, as you said, our most sensitive data sets. Uh, and we want it to be an open and transparent system where if we say that we are not using your medical data, that researchers are not using your medical data, that uh, instance of revocation of consent is viewable by anyone and you can trust it, right? You don't have to trust us. You can trust the data, you can trust the blockchain. Um, so when we're talking about open uh, transparency and verifiability and the removal of trust from a data interaction, that's really where blockchain uh, has the most applications. So view it as a way to keep companies and people and even governments accountable. Uh, and, and when you view it from that perspective, uh, even when we're talking about pharmaceutical development, et cetera, uh, using chain of command and ensuring traceability over, for example, drugs and uh, potentially a bad batch of drugs from a manufacturer, uh, you can be absolutely sure if that is traced through the blockchain that they're not tampering with the data. And if they are, it shows up immediately. So it's really for us a tool of accountability uh, and, and transparency when it comes to healthcare. What, what is decentralized science? Decentralized science, uh, DSI, it's one of my favorite um, favorite movements. I have to say it's more of a movement than anything else. Uh, and it's something that's really growing. So it, it built uh, on top of the open science um, kind of movement, opening up collaboration, interdisciplinary teams, um, and it's using blockchain and other Web3 technologies to advance scientific research developments, uh, transparency, decentralization, all of my favorite words. Um, yeah. into the scientific research and development process, but also funding. So as I mentioned, we're using it uh, when it comes to consent-based medical data access. One of our partners uh, is called Genomes, and they're using it for genomic data. So they're creating these secure vaults that people can get their, like 23andMe, get their DNA sequenced. It goes into a vault, and they have full control and verifiability of any access to that data or lack thereof. Um, so even in the genomic space, it's it's taking uh, taking root. And then, um, as I said, scientific and medical research. So there's uh, one group called Athena Dow, and they're crowdfunding women's health healthcare research. 
Um, but also it's, it's being applied in scientific publishing. So if anyone knows of Elsevier, they probably know it's not a great organization. They are the gatekeepers of uh, scientific publication and they charge ridiculous amounts of money for people to get their scientific research published. Um, this is problematic. It's very slow. It's ineffective. And it is again, subject to these people in the background who are putting their finger on the scale of what gets published, what get doesn't, what doesn't get published. Um, and so by using blockchain and open source and, and kind of crowdsource tools, um, you can apply it to whether it's funding, whether it's publication or, or the actual research itself, uh, apply these tools to make it more equitable, more transparent and, and more crowd, crowdsourced. And that's really the, the decentralized aspect is basically breaking down these uh, national barriers that we have, but even organizational barriers that happen uh, and kind of taking the uh, open source approach to uh, research, scientific data, all of these things that are super important for, uh, you know, talk about AI and all of that, um, opening up data in as much legal and ethical way as possible, I think is really crucial uh, to ensure that we have the output and the, the tools that serve us rather than, uh, you know, are forced upon us by whoever's making them. For sure, sure. You give such comprehensive answers. I'm gonna have so many clips to put out on my YouTube channel now. Um, okay, you. so we've, <laughs> absolutely. We've talked about blockchain, we've talked about decentralization, you know, the aspect of trustless. So we have to come to it. What are your thoughts on the cryptocurrency revolution? Are there benefits or is this just a techno fad? Yeah, it's a big topic. Uh, and I may have a little bit of a different answer than a lot of people who are in blockchain or cryptocurrency. So to preface, I think about 90% of cryptocurrency is absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is scams, a lot of it is Ponzi schemes, a lot of it is just, you know, um, vaporware that's never really planned to come to market. It's just a good way to make some money. Um, so I've been in the privacy space for a long time, uh, but I also, I got into crypto, I believe in like 2012. So my first Bitcoin that I bought was under $50. Um, and wow. during that, yeah, is is way back when, um, I also helped launch one of the first business, uh, direct to consumer companies that accepted cryptocurrency payments. I think that was in 2013. Um, so I've been in the space a long time and I've been following the space in a long time, uh, a lot of it on, you know, Bitcoin forums and deep web forums and stuff like that. And when it first started, it really was this kind of societal revolution, this way to take big financial interests out of our day-to-day -day transactions, a way for us to exchange data in a fair way uh, and equitable, transparent, and, and you know, removing the need primarily to trust financial organizations. And then sometime after Binance launched their smart chain, uh, and uh, you know this kind of meme coin casino exploded. It just it lost a lot of these fundamentals, which for me was really difficult to watch because when you look at it from the technological point of view, blockchain has so much to offer and can be one of it's one of the fairest technologies we have. You know, um, lies and and scams and all of that. In theory, the blockchain can help solve these by making things verifiable, removing trust. Um, yeah, and then we went to meme coins and uh, overpriced monkey pictures, NFTs for profile pictures. And right. um, so we lost a lot of that. Uh, is it a, a techno fad? I don't think so. And, and I'll tell you why. So when you actually take the technology behind it, the European government has already started to implement blockchain technology in our digital identity verification. So we have this new mm -hmm. uh, regulation coming out where they have said blockchain technology and um, 
uh, self-sovereign identity, which is part of that, is going to be the way forward for anyone verifying who they are online. Uh, also for signing contracts, for making any legal agreement to be able to put the time, date, and contents of a legal agreement on the blockchain so no one can change dates or remove a signature or you know, any of this stuff. Um, so the actual applications behind the scenes are huge. And it's, as I said, already in healthcare, we're seeing it, but in all industries, there is some uh, movements in from blockchain. Um, but as we know it right now with meme coins and celebrity endorsements and all of this nonsense, like, honestly, I hope that goes away because it's yeah. taking away from the real fundamentals of, of what this technology can offer society. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin specifically? So in my mind, Bitcoin, I separate Bitcoin out of cryptocurrency because, well, for, for a number of reasons, but it's a surprisingly different technology. Like. I think Michael Saylor said that Bitcoin isn't cryptocurrency, but it's crypto property. So is it the same thing in your mind? Do you group Bitcoin into this hype of other cryptocurrencies or do you think Bitcoin as a, a separate force for good? Um, I think it's different in the sense that it is kind of the original cryptocurrency and a lot of the issues that it aimed to solve at the beginning, it actually did, right? So do we need a thousand copies of it? Maybe not because we have Bitcoin. Um, also, they're doing continuous development. So they launched the Lightning Network, which reduced fees dramatically. You can exchange Bitcoin for a few cents on the dollar now. Um, and then also they've just launched, uh, or they're going to be launching soon, smart contracts, which allow for all of this cool functionality automation. Um, and, and that to me is super exciting. Um, is it fundamentally so different from any of the copies that came subsequently? No. Uh, and I do think that unfortunately it's been latched onto as more of a speculative, speculative investment. Uh, and that is something that it's not been able to shake. It's like the original creator of hype about where can the price go and what am I going to be worth in a few years and, and how much money can I make here? And so I think in that sense, it's definitely kind of become like the, the Wall Street of, of, of cryptocurrency in the sense that it's, it, it is very much the, the main uh, mainstream attractor of investment and, and the interests that come with it with financial investment. Um, that said, I think it, that doesn't change the fundamental things that it, it brought to the table originally. Um, the, the open, transparent system of being able to exchange value and exchange data and ensure that that data can be exchanged and trusted or is trustless. Um, so those things haven't changed, but I think it's really like with any technology, and, and I'll say this about everything, when you put it out in the world, you can't control what the world is going to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so while, you know, Satoshi and some of the other um, founders had the right intentions, I think once you put your creation out into the world, kind of like Frankenstein's monster, it will uh, do what it wants. Sure. Um, and so, you know, I feel less bad about it in terms of some of these uh, other projects that have come up that are typically just using marketing hype to create value, they don't really add anything. And I think mm -hmm. Bitcoin can replace a large percentage of, of what's out there in terms of, uh, you know, um, exchange of value, value vehicle. Um, mm -hmm. So again, like I, I've been in blockchain a long time. I really, I, I love the technology, but I also think that it has been co-opted uh, across the board, even with Bitcoin by bigger interests. Uh, and many of them are not looking out for the original principles and for the, the people. Yeah, well, I hope that Bitcoin can retain its core values. And I feel like all the Bitcoin maximalists and the Bitcoin community are going to make sure of that. So just to end on a positive note, buy Bitcoin. Um, so <laughs> clearly data is important, but no one really cares about their online data. Should they start caring and why should they? 
Yeah, um, I, I mentioned I've been in the privacy space a long time. So I remember when, you know, we were talking about privacy on ICQ and AOL Instant Messenger, which maybe your listeners may not be familiar with if they're Gen Z, uh, but it was way back in the day, mid, late 90s. Um, and back then, if you thought that the government was collecting and analyzing your data, you were considered a conspiracy theorist. Like people would make fun of you, say that's nonsense. And then we had the Snowden leaks, we had Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, WikiLeaks, etc. They really changed this and brought awareness of privacy and data into the public space. And so, you know, I, I'll push back on one thing. Um, no one really cares about their online data. So according to the Internet Society, 75% of people worldwide are distrustful of the way that their data is stored and shared right now. And in, eight, in, in the U.S., at least 80% of people are concerned about the way their data is handled by private companies and the government, 80%. So eight in 10 are actually concerned about the way their data is being used. Um, that said, only 30% more or less of consumers have terminated a relationship with the company because of their data practices, right? So eight in 10 people say this is a big problem. Only three in 10 are actually doing something about it. Um, so this is what I would frame. Instead of people not caring about their data, this is what I think is going on, just having watched the space for a long time. I think as the mining of our data uh, and the abuse of it and, and everything that's going on in these black box companies, uh, it's become so commonplace that I think on the one hand, people feel maybe powerless to do anything about it uh, because everything is tracked, everything, you know, all of our data is being collected, it's being run through. You know, we, we go, we encounter dozens of algorithms per day. Every time you turn on your phone, you're, you're interacting actually with an algorithm and data collection. Um, and I think actually what that's had is number two, a knock on effect of making people a little bit more apathetic. Um, but it's because like, well, I can't do anything about it. So why should I really care? Right. Um, but inside we have this understanding and this knowledge that our data is being used for purposes that maybe we disagree with. Um, but we just feel like we, we can't do so much about it. So that's why, you know, for me, um, I, I would say people do care, but they feel quite powerless. Um, and, and so in that sense, I would really urge people, especially those listening, to do something about it. And it's really easy. Like you can, you can start using privacy focused browsers like ditch Google Chrome, start using Brave or DuckDuckGo is uh, launching a browser as well. Use ad blockers and a VPN. Uh, and just be super careful about what you share online, um, because that can be used, you know, we talked a little bit about China and this behaviorally based social credit system. Um, who knows what other governments are doing, uh, you know, they're, they're for sure interested in this technology, typically under the guise of like security and anti-terrorism. But at the end of the day, you know, those who govern us have a vested interest in knowing what people are thinking and how they're acting and what they have the potential to do and a lot of this data is coming from our online interactions so these these easy steps of you know even for me i, I ditched uh, gmail after so i remember google google mail was invite only and i got one of the invites this must have been like early 2000s i've been wow. with them for more than 20 years and it finally got to the point like understanding what was going on you know how they're actually running uh, language analysis on your emails if you're not paying for their paid software. So any free Gmail account, your emails are being read and analyzed by Google without a question. Um, so once I realized that, I switched over to Proton Mail and end-to-end -end encrypted mail services and you know services like Telegram, uh, where hopefully uh, the messages can't be intercepted. Uh, but these are some like easy things that people can do and and. You know, the other thing to really keep in mind is that it's not just like, oh, this one interaction, should this be shared or is this being tracked? 
it is every single interaction, every search that you do, every click that you make. When you add in eye tracking software, for example, it's what you're looking at, how long you spend on a certain thing, which all builds this profile. And the more data, especially for people in Gen Z who are like digital babies and had their first like birthdays on Instagram or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you, you really have this enormous, enormous set of data and uh, the ability with these tracking software from companies to put all of these bits together. And then all of a sudden, you know, you really can be profiled to a, a high extent. And I've seen this in my uh, previous job with digital marketing. You can create highly specific, highly targeted ads based on someone's interactions, who they're friends with, what they like, what they've clicked on in the past, what kinds of videos they post, uh, language analysis in their, you know, Instagram stories or whatever. And you can really narrow down someone to basically knowing exactly who they are in their own city based on all these parameters. So, you know, it's, we're not quite at, you know, um, minority report level of um, society yet, but we have all of those tools in place and, and you really have to be aware that they are constantly running in the background. I have to ask, and I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but do you actually believe that, you know, these encrypted services are actually encrypted? Like iMessage, for example, is proposed to be end-to-end -end encrypted, but no. I think a lot of people are still skeptical about that. So even if it's being advertised like Telegram or Proton or iMessage or even WhatsApp is said to be encrypted, do you fully believe it? Is there some, you know, in the back of your mind, are you skeptical about this? You know, what are your thoughts on this? You know, you know, it's, a, it's a, we, we don't read it. It's all encrypted. Don't worry, use that service. You know, it's free and it's encrypted and we don't want to make any money off of it. Like, do you actually believe this? um yes and no i know that's okay. a terrible way to answer okay. question but sure. so on the one hand i think if we're going to multiple layers of psyops um you would assume that the government or governments or three-letter agencies would have a vested interest in putting out media out there that says oh yes end-to-end -end encryption is safe and you should rely on these tools etc um one one thing that actually gives me a little bit of hope is when you see lawsuits, for example, with Apple uh, or with ProtonMail, where the governments had said, you know, we 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 want this data. It's part of a lawsuit. You're you're being subpoenaed for it, and the companies can literally respond, we don't have access to it. We don't have the keys. Sorry, mm -hmm. like you know, um, so we can give you the encrypted data, but unless you're able to break that encryption, which in some cases they are, um, then. I would hope that this is indicative that they actually can't access the data. Um, I think I've always been uh, of the opinion that if you're putting it online or on a digital format, it can and will be hacked. Um, and even when we like put put end-to-end -end encryption aside, um, there was a uh, an app recently, I can't remember the name, uh, it was just in the news yesterday, that was being used by criminals and drug dealers to communicate securely online, right? So they didn't trust Telegram or, or WhatsApp, they were using this other app. And the um, Interpol didn't actually break the encryption. They very cryptically in this article said, uh, through a technological insertion means we were able to gain access to uh, to the data unencrypted. So whether, I, I don't know, did they like break into a, a server complex somewhere and you know hack directly into the, I, I don't know what that means and they're not gonna share it. Uh, sure. But we have to assume just for safety's sake, if you're ever doing something, uh, which I would recommend not to, but it's uh, illegal, but it also talking about like, um, you know, conscientious protesters, people uh, like journalists who are leaking news of abuses abroad. 
um, human rights uh, activists. These are all people targeted by the various governments, various, various uh, agencies. And for people who are breaking the law in that sense, in a good way, you know, you have to imagine that anything you do online or in a digital connected device can be intercepted either by key loggers where who cares about the encryption, they're getting the actual keys being pressed, uh, or potentially breaking encryption that we currently think is unbreakable. But uh, just as a side note, quantum, quantum computing changes this entirely. What used to be unbreakable becomes more easily breakable, more quickly breakable. And so, you know, we, we have to keep up with our, our um, encryption algorithms, but at the same time, assume that they're maybe not working if it's like life or death for you and you're reporting on human rights abuses abroad. For sure. No, I just wanted to mention a quick dichotomy, but it's interesting that we just talked about like, you know, personal information being on the blockchain, which is immutable and open, transparent everywhere. But then we're also talking about like search for dog videos with a VPN using DuckDuckGo. It's like, what, what kind of world do we live in right now? But please, if, if you have thoughts on quantum computing, I would love to hear them. What are your thoughts on quantum computing and what kind of a game changer is it? So it's it's super exciting, especially to see it kind of come down to a more portable, and when I say portable, like room-sized device, uh, and it's only going to get smaller. I mean, the the applications are absolutely wide-ranging, um, even from like physics and our understanding of the universe and, and scientific research in those disciplines, uh, but also just in the sheer ability to accomplish things faster and analyze things faster um, when it comes to, like I said, um, you know, the, the healthcare applications it means finding potential. So using algorithms right now to find new drug candidates. Um, it takes a long time. You have to you have to run the programs. They can run sometimes for months. Uh, and this is a, 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 you know, technology that could cut that down into hours, days, maybe even minutes or seconds. We don't know. Um, so its ability to, you know, analyze large data sets and produce the, the outputs, whether it's uh, 3D printed drugs or treatments or even cancer analysis, you know, these sorts of things are only going to speed up. Uh, and when it comes to critical life-saving healthcare, which, you know, obviously is, is kind of my discipline, uh, that means faster results, faster improvements, faster treatments uh, for patients. So um, I, the, the applications are, are, are super broad, so I think it would be like a whole other podcast to get into it. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of speeding up our ability to find solutions to current problems, especially in healthcare, it's, it's super exciting. Uh, and I think especially as it, you know, reaches critical mass and, and more, you know, public reachability. I mean, even I think Google and IBM are starting to open up their uh, supercomputers to people. Um, so having that kind of power at our fingertips, when you pair that with, you know, this kind of individual entrepreneurship, people just out there who aren't part of a research institute, but they have good ideas, mm -hmm. um, they might then be able to benefit from this technology for, you know, citizen science, citizen research, which to me is super exciting. This is such a, an insane time that we live in that we can talk about these technologies and just, you know, ideate. Uh, so we've talked sure. about artificial intelligence, we've talked about decentralized science, blockchain, cryptocurrency, healthcare, um, quantum computing, I didn't even know we were going to get into that today, so thank you for that. Um, it's possible that no, uh, it's possible that someone doesn't engage in any of these technologies. But one thing that I think everyone will experience is burnout at some point in their lives, you know, unfortunately. And so you have experience with burnout. Um, we talked about it on our last call. And so what is your kind of, I guess, maybe a metaphorical cure or an actual cure for burnout? And how did you deal with it? 
Yeah, I, so, I mean, I've been working, I think, about 15 years now. Yeah, more or less, a little bit longer. Uh, and often in the, the startup space, which is just such a frenetic pace, uh, and you're working, you know, like 60 hours a week is a good week in a startup, uh, let alone, you know, 40, which is more reasonable. Um, sure. So it's it's bound to happen, especially when you're working in emerging technologies or, or really any any job that is high demand. Um, and, you know, one thing, the, the reason why I think about it or have thought about it a lot, not just also having experienced it, um, but also as, as a manager who has people under me and wanting to make sure that they're doing okay, you know, and, and uh, you know, performing well, sure, but at the end of the day, happy people do good work, right? And if you enjoy sure. your life and you're not feeling worn down and you're sleeping well and, you know, all of these things, you actually wake up ready to go to work. And, and that for me... The, the times when I knew that I was starting to burn out was when I was waking up hating my life. I have a great yeah. life. Um, you know, I'm happily married. I live in Italy. I'm working in emerging tech, all things that, you know, some people may dream of. Uh, and you just wake up and say, like, I hate my life. I can't do this today. And and that for me is is kind of the, the main sign of, of, of burnout for me, uh, because I'm very good at ignoring it for a long time. And your listeners may be, too, where just for months and months are like, ignore, ignore, like I can do this and just get through it. And I have one more task to do. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, OK, I'm quitting my job because I can't do this. And, and you haven't really planned it out. So how I've really countered that is I found that the wavelength of cities and the frenetic pace and the energy was just too much for me, especially when I have that same wavelength of energy in my day to day job. And so from like seven in the morning till seven in the evening, I'm, it's go, go, go. Uh, and the city never let me detach from that and just relax fully. Um, so a big uh, shift for me was moving to the mountains in Italy. I'm at, uh, I think, 4,300 feet, so 1,200 meters or so. Um, oh, we, have ski lifts. <laughs> we, we have ski lifts, two minute walk from my house. Um, and that for me was a huge, huge shift because being somewhere beautiful, being surrounded by nature and this like easygoing life of everyone else helps me sink more to that wavelength while still being super, you know, um, performative and and you know i have performance goals and our company has must wins uh, but at the end of the day you know i can just detach and relax um but i think the the real i mean not everyone has an opportunity to do that i fully understand i'm very lucky that i am italian and could easily move here um but the thing that really changed it for me was a practice of um, mindfulness meditation and yoga and putting those into my life purposefully those have anyone can do it. You can just sit in your apartment or in your room or, or your dorm um, and just have that pra practice of, of meditation. Even in, like, you don't even have to call it meditation. Just sit with your eyes closed for 10, 15 minutes at some point during the day and chill. And, and it's not even about having an empty mind. It's about processing and, you know, just bringing your energy levels down. That for me was absolutely transformative. Um, but also this mindfulness practice and, and reminding yourself of the important things in life and, uh, talking through your issues and just being aware of what's going on mentally and, and physically in your own body. These are things that have a huge impact uh, on burnout. And, and I can say, like, since I made these changes, I haven't felt that. Um, and I think for sure, just the last thing is working in a position or in a field or a job that just meshes with who you are as a person and makes you excited and that you're passionate about. That, sure. to me, will get you through many, many difficult days. Uh, while not feeling burned out like you would in a job that you hate or just not particularly passionate about. For sure. And uh, if people are interested, you know, I'm not sponsored, but I really enjoy the Waking Up app uh, by Sam Harris. It's a fantastic app and, you know, 
it, it's super beneficial, especially the introductory course. I'm doing it a second time around and, you know, morning and night, you know, engaging in some form of meditation. It's, you don't know how beneficial it is until you try it. We'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. Okay, so last but not least, this is the Gen Z Diplomat Podcast, and I really enjoyed this conversation with you. So last question is, what advice do you have for Gen Z? So uh, a couple of a couple of points that for me have been transformational. Um, so number number one is be curious and constantly learning. Um, don't just settle for what you already know or what's quote unquote in your wheelhouse. Um, by being curious and constantly learning, you're going to find out things that you didn't know about yourself, about opportunities out there that you didn't even know existed. Um, and that opens up all kinds of opportunities for you personally, professionally, your career, all that kind of stuff. Um, and follow, it's, it's going to sound cliche, but really follow your passions. Like I said before, if you're working in a field that you are passionate about, you can ignore all kinds of other things that are going wrong um, when you are driven to achieve something. And, you know, for me, I, I have had a very career. I've worked in tech startup founding, or consulting and founding. Um, I've worked as a journalist for a little while in marketing and PR. Um, so I've had like a varied career and I can say, you know, until my early thirties, I really had no idea what it was that I actually wanted to do. Uh, and that's okay. Like you don't have to decide who you're going to be in 10, 15 years time. Uh, but if you're curious about yourself and your own passions and interests, you will start to build this, uh, career, but also just this person of, of who you are based on your experiences that will support you in your future endeavors and goals. Um, and I think the other thing um you know just to finish on, on that thought i still suffer from imposter syndrome um you know and even my colleagues who are doctors one of so one of our my my ceo or my um president she's a doctor uh an economist and uh she was voted one of the top 100 women in ai one of the top 100 most influential people in polish healthcare and yet we talk about all the time imposter syndrome that she feels as a young person uh, just turned 30, um, working in the medical field. So it will never go away. But if I could put all of that aside and just believe in myself a little bit more 10 years ago in my career, who knows where I'd be at at this point. It's taken time to build that up, and that's okay. Um, and I think the other advice that I have, um, you know, there's kind of this a lot of talk about work reform and people quitting their jobs because they're not treating them well. And I will say this working for a company that actually sees you as a human and cares about you will make all the difference in your future uh, and i'm very very lucky to work with doctors who see us as human first and and care about our mental and and, and physical well-being before they care about our output and we have all that as i said like performance goals and i have my weekly must wins and to-do lists and but at the end of the day you know if i'm not feeling well or if i need a day or i'm just having like a you know a shitty day and need to take a break for my mental health they're 100% understanding and and that makes all the difference. So, you know, I, I would just say uh, this is not the most common uh, out there. There are a lot of companies that just don't care. Um, but if you can find one that does care about you as a person and not just words, but actually puts that into practice, it will absolutely change your working life. Um, so don't settle. Don't settle for, for yourself. Don't settle for your career. Don't settle for who you're working with um and and really believe that you deserve and can achieve more uh, and and i hate that how cliche that sounds saying it but really you know those principles have been absolutely transformational to where i was in my late teens early 20s to where i am now 
It, it, it may be cliche, but it doesn't reduce the importance of it being said. You know, it, sometimes the cliches are always lost in the wind. And so people hearing this from someone as experienced, as intelligent, as wise, and as accomplished as someone like you, it, it, it makes a major difference in how they structure their life and how they plan their life. Um, Danny, this was a, an amazing conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. Um, all the topics we covered and places the conversations went. So where can people find you on this uh, in, in cyberspace? Yeah, it's, a, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. And I really hope that your audience finds it uh, interesting, enlightening, and hopefully maybe comforting in some, some respects if they're scared of this uh, Skynet AI future that we're looking at. Um, so you can find me pretty much on all social media networks uh, at Gradivis, G-R-A-D-I-V-I-S. Um, and if you're interested in what we're building in terms of the healthcare applications of AI and consent-based ethical medical data access, you can go to donateyourdata.io. And that website has all the information on what we're doing, the hospitals we're working with and, and everything else. So uh, Fantastic. Yeah. We'll, always we'll happy to connect. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we'll link everything in the description. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and uh, hopefully we bump into each other again.